Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Hello, beautiful people. <laughs> this is Bradley Onishi. He is the creator and voice behind Straight White American Jesus, the podcast. Um, can you quickly brag about all of your other credentials? <laughs> sure. I mean, um, I'm an associate professor of religious studies at Skidmore College, and uh, I've um, written for many places. I just recently wrote a piece for the New York Times on Lizzo and um, uh, others thinking of themselves as their own soulmates, which is kind of a cool idea. Mm -hmm. um, and I've written for religion and politics and HuffPost and um, all those places. And I have a book called The Sacrality of the Secular that's out with uh, Columbia University Press. So Amazing. Today I'm really excited. We're going to talk about masculinity. And I already told Bradley I'm excited to dive into this because I've been talking about masculinity with a lot of women lately and i really want to hear from a man i've made a lot of assumptions about what kind of um relationship men might have with toxic theology when it comes to purity culture modesty culture what it is to be a man have your woman submit to you all of these things i know for a fact cause destruction to both sexes but I really wanted to bring male identifying person to the table to actually talk about this. So it would probably make the most sense to just have you go into your story and how you discovered evangelicalism. So I grew up in a largely non-religious uh, home. My dad is Japanese American and I grew up in California. Um, and he was kind of Buddhist by upbringing, but wasn't really practicing. Same goes for my mom. And so by age 14, I was kind of acting out a little bit, like I was kind of getting in trouble and hanging out with folks that were experimenting with drugs and drinking and, and all that stuff and sex. And so, so you I get were invited. Cool. I was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I have a, it's so funny. So I have a friend from who I'm still friends with from middle school. And, and he, when he met my, um, my partner for the first time, he was like, you need to know something. Brad peaked in eighth grade. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which might, which might be true. I don't know. Um, and so, uh, 
I get invited to church by my then like eighth grade girlfriend. And I'm like, this is a great idea. Mom cannot say no to me going to church and I'll get to see my girlfriend on a, like a Wednesday night. That's um, unheard of when you're 14. That's a really good way to get out of the house. And so we go and, um, I think in ways similar to you, Brenda, I just had this great experience. Like the youth leaders were cool. They had tattoos. They were playing the guitar. Everyone was like super nice to me. They were um, inviting me to go on this like surfing retreat they were going to do. And right away, I was just like, this is a really safe space. It's a place where I feel like people are asking questions about the meaning of life, which I'm really into and I'm really interested in thinking about. And, and so very quickly I was all in like the, 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 the girl who invited me to church dumped me really quickly, but I didn't care. I was like, I am in on this. And so within about a year, I had gone from hanging out with folks that were kind of getting in trouble and drinking and drugs and sex and rock and roll to uh, I'm standing outside the movie theater asking people if they know Jesus Christ and I'm going to Bible study like twice a week and um, I'm arguing with my dad because he's telling me I'm spending too much time at church. And and now and you're I'm a nerd. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. That's what I, since then, my life has been tied up with two things, Jesus and being a nerd. And um, (laughs) nothing's changed. So I don't know what to do about that. No disparagement to nerds. I am one. I love them. So anyway, that's, that's my story. By the time I was 18, I was kind of working with the youth group. And then by the time I was 20, I was uh, a youth pastor. It was a big church, 2,000 people. So I was, I became one of the youth pastors there. And I, um, I, I also got married to my high school sweetheart. So by the time I'm 20, I have finished two years of college. I'm a full-time minister and I am married. So there you go. Wow. And there's a lot to unpack there because I think something I'm primarily curious about in this story is your life as a pastor, specifically as a youth pastor, because my youth pastors um, wounded me the deepest. And a lot of it was because they were so trustworthy. They were closer to my age. They were younger. They didn't feel as exce- like inaccessible as the lead pastor. Um, and, you know, they, they were always open to talking to us, engaging with us. And they were also bringing up topics of sexuality and relationship and you know, we were going on these retreats together that were really intimate and getting to know each other. So all of that said, I had a lot of rage towards them for a while because, you know, when you are ashamed, when you're put into fear, when you are damaged, it translates to rage. Like part of the mourning process of going through my deconstruction was being so angry at these people. Then in retrospect, I realized they were 22 to 27 years old maximum. And now that I'm beyond that age myself, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I have my entire world, my entire sexual ethic, my entire religious belief system wrapped around whatever these 22 to 26 year old people were telling me. And that might not be true of everyone. You know, maybe your youth pastor was 70, but like, regardless, we trusted them so implicitly um, and they didn't necessarily know what they were doing. And the proof of that is that my youth pastors are all now divorced now. 
And they all went through crazy bouts of infidelity and abuse and sexual abuse in some cases. So I know these messages damage them just as deeply. Everything you said there is, is, is true of my experience it, to some degree. And so what I mean by that is I'm age 15, just like you, very quickly I go from um, kind of just a young person who's with a developing kind of sexuality to, oh, okay, Jesus doesn't want me to um, have a physical relationship with anyone. And very quickly, I'm the person who's like a freshman in high school telling people, I'm not going to kiss anyone until I get married, right? And I, I, didn't, that, I didn't make it. Um, I did, you know, kiss a person or two, but that, is, that was my outlook. And so what happens is I go from 14, 15, 16 being sort of formed in this idea to now I'm 18, 19, 20, and I'm a leader. And what you're pointing out is in evangelical churches, it's so amazing how the young are given this authority to like lead other young people. And that was me. I'm a sophomore in college. I'm married and I get to sort of be the spiritual leader of 200 people. Um, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely, that's absolutely ridiculous. Right. Wow. And if you want to know, I mean, just quickly, Brenda, like what keeps me up at night sometimes is I have such good and warm memories of um, relationships with so many people who were in my youth group. Right. And I, mm -hmm. people I'm still in contact, people I'm still in contact with people that I continue to be friends with. And, um, people that I helped, you know, when they ran away from home or they were dealing with substance abuse or whatever that was going on, right? That, that, that stuff is great. The hard part is knowing I was damaged by purity culture. I was hurt by it. It took me years to understand what I had sort of absorbed. Mm. And it really hurts me to think that I was also teaching pe people that, that mm. I was, be I was part of the, the, um, the, the sort of ongoing evangelical purity culture machine that was teaching folks that yes, you're Jesus does not want you to masturbate. And if you do that, that's a big problem. And if you, you know, um, do more than kissing before marriage, then, you know, God is mad at you. And that, you know, as um, I've heard you talk about, you know, and, and others, Linda K. Klein and, and, and Jamie Lee Finch and others, like if you treat your, if your body is uh, this out of control thing that is your enemy, well, that's damaging. And yeah, I, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, my evangelical story is definitely one of being hurt by purity culture, but it's also one where there was a couple years as a youth leader, right? Three or four or five years where from ages 18 to 22, 23, I was helping to perpetuate it. And I'm not proud of that. Um, I did get divorced. So I'm raising my hand. I'm in the youth leader divorce club for sure. Um, <laughs> it's a big club. <laughs> it's a big club. I know I'm not alone there. Right. Um, but you know, lucky for me, my, my ex-wife and I, um, we just, we had a really good, healthy breakup, essentially. Like we looked at each other at age 24 and we're like, we've been together since we're 14. Um, I love you. I care about you. Looks like we're just not supposed to be married. Like now that we're out of this evangelical culture, it kind of is pretty clear that like, we're not probably supposed to be spouses or married or, or partners. We're probably supposed to just be friends and um, that's okay. And so that happened. I was at Oxford getting a master's degree by that time. And she sort of just went home. I mean, don't get me wrong. Did it hurt like hell? Yes. Uh, was it awful and painful? Totally. Was there abuse or cheating or infidelity? There was none of that. And we're friends to this day. We, we still talk on the phone um, quite often and we're, we're close and we sometimes even still say, I love you. So all of that to me um, is a really like good and surprising outcome from the story. But um, Anyway, uh, 
all of the sort of regret and shame tied up in in the years as a youth leader and as part of a youth group are still are still things I, I reckon with for sure. Mm, I'm sorry. I really can't imagine the weight of that. Um, but I mean, there's so much redemption, you know, like it, it's biblical that God turns all into good. So the fact that you have this podcast and you're speaking out now, and I hope everyone listening in the God is great community, that this will grow your compassion for your leaders that have hurt you just to realize and don't get me wrong, compassion doesn't mean just being totally cool with the ways that you were wounded and hurt, especially if that translated to assault or abuse or anything like that. But I am saying compassion as in realizing so many of these people were struggling with these messages just as deeply and having just as hard a time as you were. Yeah, just have compassion. You know, there, I, I'll say just real quick, there was moments toward the end where I was pulling up to church on Sundays, getting there at like 6 a.m. To, to set up. And I'm sitting in my car thinking to myself, I'm going to walk in and be this leader for these kids. And I'm not even sure I still believe in God. You, wow. you know what I mean? <laughs> like, what am I doing? <laughs> wow. That happens so, to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So what were you, what, what did it actually look like? Like if you you know, I don't want to get too personal on you, but it's like, if you're telling everybody not to masturbate and you know, damn well, you masturbated the night before, how does that go? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I don't mean to imply that you masturbate. <laughs> yeah. Um, who are you to imply that? Who would have ever thought? Um, <laughs> um, it, it just, it's, it, I mean, it's everything you've talked about. It's a cycle of shame, right? It's this cycle of I'm supposed to be teaching other people to abide by this ridiculous sexual ethic that makes no sense in the real world. And yet I'm struggling with it too. Um, I'm going to be open and honest about like my failures with, with students when they ask me, but I have to be a leader and be an example. And so, yeah, like there was, I, you know, it's, it's been 15 years since I left that life and I still have this recurring dream that I'm standing up in front of, a bunch of teenagers telling them about praying or something about God. And in my mind, I'm like, I, I wonder if anyone can see that I don't believe in God anymore. Like yeah. I have that dream. I have that dream like once a month, right? It's been 15 years. And so the shame, the guilt, the anxiety, the, all of those things, they, yeah, they haven't gone away. I mean, I feel like I've, I've, I've been able to process. I feel very healthy at this point in my life, but yeah, all those things are still there. And it, it, um, it, it, there are times it keeps me up at night for sure. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um, so then what was your path to deconstruction? And for anyone that doesn't know, um, these are terms that I found so validating because when I was, um, being a prodigal son is how I would have referred to it when I just completely decided to walk away from church, that I couldn't handle it anymore, that I didn't. Like for me, what made me walk away was that I was beginning a sexual journey that wasn't healthy. I was, you know, being very promiscuous and abusive towards my body and um, inconsiderate of others and their bodies and whatever spirits. Um, but when I walked away from church, I had so much guilt about that. And, um, at the same time, I knew that I'd never lost God. Like I still 
prayed all the time, constantly throughout the day. I still read my Bible every night. And I began to resent the fact that people were like, you're not a Christian. So I was like, what does that even mean then? Because I am, I love Jesus. I resonate with him so deeply. So for me, I thought I was a prodigal son. And then when I realigned my faith and, and realized with strength and power that I am very well much allowed to call myself a Christian because that's exactly what I am. Um, that is now termed deconstruction and reconstruction. And just hearing those terms and putting words to my experience was very like freeing for me and validating. So that's just a preface to be like, this is what we're talking about when we say deconstruction. So you have a youth leader yourself that is struggling, that doesn't know if he believes in God anymore. So first of all, what broke that? Like what was the turning point? And then what did deconstruction look like? You know, I, I don't know if anyone ever told you this, but there was folks in my church who said, if you read too much, you're going to lose your faith. Um, oh, yeah. And they were right. They were right, uh, as it turns out, because, um, you know, when I when I got to the, the last year of college, um, I, I was just reading everything. I, I wanted to know everything I could about philosophy and theology. I wanted to know if God was real. I wanted to know what God was like. I wanted to know is any other way to be a Christian than this very strict and narrow and and um, repressing kind of evangelical culture. And so I was like reading everything I could get my hands on. You know, I, my day off as a pastor was Thursday. I would get up at like 5 a.m. when my wife went, and I would just read, you know, all day. Like the people at Starbucks knew me by, knew me by uh, name and they would talk to me. And again, so, nerd. <laughs> I know it, it never stopped. Right. And so um, my wife, my ex-wife and I decide, hey, we, we need to get out of here. We've lived in the same town with the same people for basically our whole lives. So I'm going to go get a master's degree in like philosophy of religion and keep asking these questions. And you, she was a college basketball player. You're going to play basketball. And so we're, let's find a place we can do that. So we decided it was going to be England. And um, I applied to several schools, never thought I'd get in. And some by some crazy thing, um, ended up in England at Oxford, getting a master's degree in theology. Um, like I mentioned, she kind of six months in, we both realized, oh, we're probably not going to be together anymore. She left. And by that point, I was like, I'm no longer, I'm no longer part of the Christian fold. Um, I'm no longer married and I'm 24. I have no idea who I am in the world. And I'm living in like a foreign country, 6,000 miles from my home in California, what do I do now? And so I started this very long and painful process of reconstruction. Um, I stayed in the religion game. I'm a religion professor. My whole life is spent thinking about life's most fundamental questions, birth, death, love, sex, um, all that stuff. And, and yet, um, I've never really found my way back to Christianity. I don't identify as a Christian, even though my whole life is sort of spent um, studying sacred scriptures and rituals and texts and communities. And so um, that's kind of where I landed. Don't get me wrong. There are years and years in there of pain and heartbreak and confusion and shame and doubt trying to just kind of like, I mean, I was like 23 and trying to like smoke a cigarette for the first time in England and just like had no idea what I was doing. Or I was age 24. I remember being age 24 and like getting drunk for the first time, like having one too many drinks and just mm. being like, Oh, this is what this is like, right? Um, you know what I mean? Oh, this is what they warned me about in youth group. And um, just stuff like that. Like going, I mean, Brenda, I went on my first, first date 
when I was 24, right? So I'm 24, I'm like newly divorced and some poor soul decides they want to go on a date with me. And, you know, instead of it being just a normal 24 year old date, like at some point I have to explain like, yeah, I haven't been on a first date since I was 14. Cause I've been married that whole time or like with the same person. And so you're the lucky person who gets to like have this terrible experience of like meeting me, like trying to, trying to figure his life out. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's awful. You know? So there was a lot of, a lot of times like that, you know? Oh, I'm sure it wasn't that awful. <laughs> Went too hard on yourself. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So I'd love to talk about, well, first of all, it's interesting because I was saying in my interview with uh, Susan Cottrell, she has two LGBTQ daughters and she calls herself a mama bear. She is a Christian that advocates for the good treatment and love and acceptance of the LGBTQ community and a Christian spectrum. But um, in talking to her, we were both saying that deconstruction is so painful and so terrifying. And it's terrifying to the core of your soul because you're told that if you ask questions, you could go tumbling and you might lose God. And if you lose God, you're going to go to hell. You're going to burn in hell for eternity. So that terror isn't just this like casual, like, oh, I'm just going to like play around and ask myself some questions you feel like your entire eternity is at risk. And the weight of that is insane. So that said, going on deconstruction means you finally have hit the tipping point. You're finally broken enough that you are like, I am going to ask these questions and I might lose my faith. And at this point, I'm in so much pain and so much confusion that I just have to take that risk. And that's exactly what you and I did. That's what Susan says she does. That's what a lot of the God is great community is doing and has done. Um, Yeah. So going to reconstruction, it's like, it is what it is for you now. And I've swung my way or I never left Jesus. I've always resonated with that. So yeah. Yeah. Um, You will come out on the other side and it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A large process, a large part of the process for me was, um, thinking about what it meant to be a man, meant to be masculine. Um, You know, you'll know, Brenda, that in evangelical youth group culture, there's this strict binary between men and women, and there's these very strict ideas of what a man is and what a woman is. Never totally fit into that man model. Like, when I was growing up, I was a nerd. Um, I I was really into books and and that kind of stuff. Um, I did play sports, but I was not good at, like, traditional, quote-unquote, evangelical man stuff. Like, I couldn't build anything. I didn't like to like horse play and like wrestle and play video game, like all the stuff that like all the boys in the youth group were doing. Um, I just wasn't good at it. Like when we went to summer camp and there was like a game at night where everyone was playing capture the flag, I was like usually in my cabin, like reading about Thomas Aquinas or something. Um, (laughs) And so um, when I got out of evangelicalism, it was actually a breath of fresh air because I was around people who had a very, Uh, or a much wider understanding of what it meant to be masculine, right? Like I was at, I was in England and I was with people who were into books and they like to travel or they like to drink wine or they like to um, be interested in, in things other than like uh, sports or, um, you know, just quote unquote, like man stuff, you know, and it felt really good. Like it felt like, Oh, I don't have to worry all the time that someone's going to criticize me for not being a real man. Like I'm not, 
making my wife submit to me in the right way or something. I'm not being aggressive enough at home. I'm not being assertive enough when it comes to the rules in my house or how my family operates or um, whatever it is you're supposed to be like in that whole John MacArthur, John Eldridge, men are the sort of like leaders and women need to submit to them. Like I was just never good at that anyway. And so getting out of evangelicalism meant I no longer had to worry or be afraid that I was going to be criticized for being the wrong kind of um, sort of man. Um, on the other hand, I discovered that in my relationships, like once I did start dating and, and having relationships, um, a lot of things started to surface. Like I was never the kind of like um, what I would call like a toxic masculine dude. Like I was never into um, being aggressive and making like my partner feel like they were in any way less than me. Like that's just not kind of who I am. But I did have this abiding idea that I know you'll be familiar with, which is from um, John Eldridge's uh, book, um, and where he says that men are supposed to be warriors who rescue their princess, right? And there's this idea in evangelical purity culture that love is about saving and being saved. And it's about being a savior. And you as the man represent God and you're supposed to save someone. And I, I'll be honest, I did not realize that I had internalized that idea until years after I'd left evangelicalism. And I realized that I was often sort of causing problems in my relationships because I thought love was about saving and being saved. And it was all tied up with this, this sort of notion of adventure and rescue. And all of this comes right from, from evangelical purity culture. Anyway, um, that was a huge part of like, trying to figure out how to grow out of that, like how to love differently was a big part of like how to be a man differently, if that makes any sense. No, totally. I don't want to imply that anyone that's going through struggles or heartache or is in like weaker, um, in, in a weaker emotional state um, is a negative thing. Like everybody's on their own journey. I've been in that weak state. I've been in need of a savior um, of someone external to like swoop me out of that. So no shame to that if you're going through something, but it's interesting to imagine that men in church are given this narrative of you have to save because I imagine that would draw you to people that are in damaged places or damaged parts in their lives, going through journeys, whatever, versus actually finding someone that is aligned with you. And that aligned person could be struggling and could be needed, you know, be in a weaker position emotionally, whatever. But like, I feel like you would miss her. Or you wouldn't necessarily link up with the right person because that is a really toxic, weird way and weird reason to get in a relationship with somebody. It, it, I mean, so now in my life, I'm writing a book on the history of the soulmate myth and I have a YouTube channel called Myths of Love. And all of that is trying to work through the fact that I really thought, I really internalized this, that idea, the, everything you just said, that it's, it's a really unhealthy model for long-term partnership to think that you are going to save someone and that, or the flip side is that they're going to save you. Um, and it, it just took a long time to realize that when I thought of someone as my soulmate, I was superimposing onto that framework this whole God idea, right? So one of the, the things that I write about in my book is that for a lot of people, monotheism is monogamy and monogamy is monotheism and they can't separate them. So you love God in a way that God saves you. 
and then you turn to your human partnerships and you think, oh, that's how that works. So I'm going to do that with, th with them now. I'm either going to be the savior or I'm going to be saved. And my monogamous partnership is akin to my monotheistic love for God, right? Mm -hmm. And I just, it took me years to realize that. And it took me years to realize that when I was searching for the one, you know, the one for me, my soulmate or my partner, I had really set up the model of the one through the image of God. And that, it, and it was really, or at least, and let me back up, the image of God I had inherited from evangelicalism. And so I had to, dis, I had to separate those two if I wanted to have a healthy, loving partnership. That's incredible. I've never considered that in my life, but I love it because that just makes me think of all the anxiety and pressure that people feel to find the one. And again, us both coming into evangelicalism as teenagers, being so impressionable, being like at the forefront of our puberty and our sexual awakening, that that was not only like squelched and, and pushed down and robbed of us, but also we were all supposed to, had to find the one that we're going to spend the rest of our lives with and not being able to have sex, pairing that with our physical desire, a physical need even to have sex. Mine felt like a need after a while um, in my repression. Like we'll just speed up the process of you finding this quote one. And then you feel all this anxiety when it doesn't work out or when you realize, oh shoot, this person isn't what I thought or like, you know, so many people talk about, oh, God will present you the one and then you'll find them. And there's this happy, like one to 2%, I'll be generous, 10% of Christians who happen to find their true aligning partner in this youth group and live happily ever after. But the rest of us are with these partners and it's like, we, we aren't aligned and, and sex isn't easy. Like it was, we were told it was going to be because we have completely different desires or completely different um, sex drives or completely different views of the life and how to raise children. Like it takes a long time to find a resonant partner like that. And telling people they have to wait for marriage to have sex, adding this physicality to it adds this extra stress to just make that happen immediately. And also in youth group, we're not given the tools to even know what we're looking for in a partner. Yeah. Like in youth group, I was kind of like, what is a partner? It's a Christian guy. That's nice. To <laughs> that's, that's not enough. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Did you have like uh, kids in your youth group that were getting married or, or recording at that time? Like, did you ever use the um, Joshua Harris like premise, for example, of courtship? And like, did you walk kids through those partnerships with each other? I did a little bit. I worked mainly, um, mainly with sixth, seventh and eighth graders. So they were doing some of the like kind of dating we're talking about as like teens and preteens and stuff. But um, most of my interactions were not with like 17 and 18 year old. Like I have friends who got married. Like I literally have a friend who got married before he graduated high school, you know? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and somehow 20 years later, they're still married. Um, they both deconstructed. But um, so I, I didn't necessarily walk people through the the josh harris but i definitely tried to live the josh harris i try i definitely tried to live that out um and i definitely tried to live out the wild at heart john eldridge stuff and you know the thing for me that I, I had to come to grips with is that when we talk about god as the one 
we talk about God as completing me, making me happy, promising me an everlastingly happy future, um, and being the sort of singular entity that can um, complete my existence, right? There's these components of that story of God as the one that we tell. And then what we do in a very unhealthy way is we take those elements and we map them onto our human partner. So even non-religious people, you'll see non-religious people do this, right? People who mm. are like, I'm not, I don't believe in God. I've never been an evangelical. Oh, cool. What's a partner? Oh, the, they're my other half. They're going to complete me. They're going to make me whole and they're going to uh, make me live happily ever after. And for me, that's a religious story. That's not a human story. That's a religious story built on religious mythology. Now, if you believe in God and you believe God can do those things for you, it makes total sense that the creator of the universe could complete you and make you whole and promise you an everlastingly happy future. I'm on board. Whether <laughs> yeah. or not I, be I believe in that God, I can totally see where you're coming from. If you want to tell me that like your human partner can do that, I'm going to say, I think that's an unhealthy model of love. And I think that's why a lot of us get so disappointed when it comes to what quote unquote meeting our soulmate We're we expect of them what we should expect from God. And that's not fair. Wow. I really love that. And it's just making me realize that we were both fed the typical fairy tale. We've each been given the Cinderella story to a T like in Cinderella, she needs saving. She needs a savior. And then she gets to be this princess because she gets swept under their feet. If you're the man or male-identifying person, you are looking at Prince Charming, trying to figure out how to be that guy, trying to figure out how to save her. Yeah. And life is not a fairy tale. And that's this is what started my deconstruction. It was the moment when I realized that I didn't have a happily ever after. And I always refer to it as that because I know I was fed a fairy tale. And again, it can work out beautifully for 10% generously of people, but the rest of us are left reeling, wondering why God didn't come through on his promise. Meanwhile, God never promised us a happily ever after. He promised us this like wild, crazy adventure if we hold on to him, but not <laughs> happiness, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. fleeting. That comes and goes. It's nice when yeah. it's here, but it's not always happy. Yeah. And it's not yeah, supposed right. to be. So I'm really curious about, like I was talking in your podcast, which please everyone go check it out. Again, the Straight White American Jesus podcast. Um, Bradley just interview, interviewed me for that as well. But I was talking about how the term toxic masculinity has been set up to be a trigger phrase for people on both ends of the spectrum, like angry feminists, including men, can get all up in arms about that and be like, yeah, we have to battle this and, and get in that fury and rage. And on the other end, you know, people are vilifying it and being like, this is an attack on manhood. This is, you know, people trying to like take over and make men dance ballet. And just like both ends of the spectrum are ridiculous. And again, the name of this channel is God is Gray because it's more nuanced, it's in the middle. Um, so I just like to hear from you what you believe toxic masculinity is. How would you describe it? One thing I've been thinking about recently is that men have made the mistake from seemingly the beginning of history of equating physical strength with actual power. Huh. And what I mean by that is, okay, so, you know, if you're, if you are identify as male or if you are sexed as male, I'll say, um, 
right? There's an idea that men are physically stronger than women, that if we go to the gym, they can bench press more or they can um, jump higher or um, just have more physical force, okay? What men have done since the beginning of time is say, oh, I can, um, I can do more bicep curls or I can lift this rock that um, my female counterpart cannot. And so that must mean that I'm, I have power. That must mean that I'm fit to lead, that I'm fit to be in charge, and that she should somehow submit to me, is somehow inferior, and is somehow needing to um, just sort of take, um, allow me to take the lead when it comes to not just physical strength, but when it comes to leadership, wisdom, guidance, morals, ethics, sex, money, everything that life involves. And to me, that's where toxic masculinity or originates, is the mistake of thinking, I have physical strength, that must mean that I have actual power. And for me, power is based, like the human species is powerful. We've succeeded on this earth, for better or for worse, because of cooperation, because of collective action, because of communication. And to me, if we want to talk about alternative modes of masculinity, we have to start there. We have to start with to be a man means to be able to communicate. It means to be able to be vulnerable, as Brene Brown talks about, like the power of vulnerability. And it means to, to see power in collective action, not an individual um, strength. And I guess that's where I'd start with saying, to me, that's the difference between toxic masculinity and maybe an alternative, more healthy model. I love that. That's really beautifully said. Um... I'm also curious, we've talked a lot about the impact that purity culture had on, or not purity culture, the impact that toxic masculinity had on you believing you have to have your wife submitting to you, that you have to bring that power to the table. So I'd love to move to modesty and purity culture surrounding sexuality and the way you interact with women. Um, let's start with modesty because I'm really most curious to hear about this. Obviously, Immodesty culture very quickly led to rape culture. And again, that was never the intention, but this verse was twisted around, um, do not cause your brother to stumble. And completely taken out of context, nothing to do with women's attire, this verse is plucked out of the Bible and given to men and women to say, women, you need to guard men from the sight of your bodies. And if you are immodest, which that verse is also taken out of context. Modesty in the context of the Bible was talking about not wearing decorative things and, and like flaunting yourself all the time. And that's about the heart and why you were flaunting what you were. It wasn't about the sight of your cleavage or a little bit of leg. Um, either way, both of those were perverted and given to us to justify the idea that women need to protect men from the sight of their physical body. And if they don't, they have caused their brother to stumble. And if he sins, if he perpetuates any sexual violence against them, you are partially to blame because you caused him to stumble. A couple things. I remember being, I remember so clearly being uh, 15 or 16 years old and being part of these very cringeworthy youth group meetings where like the youth pastor had the boys on one side when it's asking us what kind of clothing causes you to lust after girls. Right. And then, Boy. you know, going back to the girls and saying, okay, so like what kind of clothing do you want to wear? And the boys said that if you wear a tube top or if you wear this, it causes them to, to quote unquote stumble, as you just said. Right. And so I was definitely 
cultivated in this culture that you're talking about. And when I became a youth minister, um, yeah, we definitely sort of like perpetuated that. And we taught, I mean, and again, I was working with mainly 12, 13, 14 year olds. So I was basically, my message was basically like, Hey, you're 12. Like who needs to be dating right now? Let's just like, <laughs> let's just enjoy life. Right. Like you're, you're 13, like just be, just grow up and be a kid. Don't worry about like these, these relationships. Um, I, I should tell you, this all came out of the context of like, you know, in high school, as you know, people in youth group were taught this stuff, but they weren't always following it, right? They were what evangelicals would call messing up all the time. They were, you know, whether they were having sex or anal sex or foreplay or anything in between, it was like most folks were doing that. My, I was not, right? Like we were really, really, really committed to this. And so again, I was sort of that kid who went from sex, drugs, and rock and roll to like, not only am I a Christian, but um, I'm going to just take this way too far, right? I'm going <laughs> to yeah. just, and like, if you wanted a story of my life, it would just be Brad taking things too far. <laughs> and so it's just like, um, like so I'm going to be the one who does, like, we're, we're not going to kiss. And so like my ex-wife and I, I think we dated three years before we kissed. Um, and then we got married like a year later. And so, um, yeah, I definitely perpetuated that culture. And then I definitely had to take years and years of my life to like recover from that and figure out how to be like a healthy sexual person. Um, once I was like out in the world and dating people, like it, it was, it was hard. There was a lot of embarrassing moments. There's a lot of just like, you know, moments of, of being in your mid twenties and thinking, Oh, like this is what normal people do. Like they go through this awkwardness and this learning phase when they're like 15 or 17. Got it. I'm just 25 and doing it. So this is fun. I'm enjoying this. You know? Yeah, me too. I was 27 when I got a divorce and that's when I learned Yeah, <laughs> everything. No, it's just too much. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think again, I, I hope that this invites people to forgive and have compassion for those that imparted these messages. Again, not to the end degree where you are forgiving real trauma or like not forgiving, but allowing but um, but just trying to trace it back and be like, I wonder if these people were in as much pain and shame and fear as I was, you know? Yep. Um, can, so go ahead. Can I just say one more thing about yeah. sort of figure, figuring out that, like for me, you know, being 25, 26, 27, as you just mentioned, um, one of the things I really had to learn was not just all of this sort of like embarrassing, awkward sexual um Kind of situations that I, I really hadn't been in before. And, you know, you, you mentioned this on my podcast when we were talking that, you know, for men, there's this expectation that, you know, evangelical culture, especially, but I think toxic masculinity in general teaches men that they're just like sexual savages that should, you know, you want to have sex all the time. And if you don't, you're not a real dude and you, you something's wrong with you. And um, it took me a long time to just be like, I just, I just need to figure out what that, who I am as a sexual being and it's not that, like, I don't need to fit that mold. And I, I, I don't need to pressure myself to fit that mold. And I don't need to be embarrassed when I don't feel like I'm somehow embodying that, that idea of a man. Um, I also just, it just took me a long time to realize that for me, um, being who I am, means being a really emotional person. Like I'm just a really emotional person. Well, when you're an evangelical dude, you're not supposed to be that. You're supposed to be this like Clint Eastwood, stoic, you know, I'm in charge and I don't, and women are weak and they show, uh, they show vulnerability through their feelings. And 
like the older I get, the more every day I'm like, I am the emotional one. I am, I cry every day. I'm sent, you know what I mean? Like I mm-hmm. probably mo- multiple times per day. And not only that, but all of the men I'm friends with, like I'm like, I, I'm in my like late thirties now, all the men I'm friends with and have been friends with for the last 10, 12, 15 years, they're all just as sensitive as I am. They're all like very vulnerable, emotional people. And when we get together and we talk about a bad breakup, one of them's going through, it's like, there's just a lot of tears and cry and openness about like how much it hurts. Well, that's just not what you're supposed to do as an evangelical man or as a toxic masculine sort of uh, conception of, of, of what a man is. And so it just took me a long time to realize this is what this means for me. This is who I am in the world. And I'm not going to be embarrassed by that. And I'm going to be very proud of, of that. And I'm going to own it. And it's going to be part of like the strength and power of who I am rather than something that I, I try to hide. Right. What true, genuine strength and power to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is one of the greatest powers in the world. And it's authentic and real and based in like love and understanding of your own self. Um, You've also just got me thinking about two things. One is that when you were talking about how men are taught that they are these irrepressible beasts, that they just want sex all the time, that's also caused rape culture in reverse. Because when women are taught that guys are irrepressible beasts and a guy won't have sex with them, again, because of this toxic masculinity and we're taught this, you know, women will be on top of a guy and be like, what are you, a pansy? Like, why don't you want me? I know you want me. And like, am I not pretty enough? Am I not good enough? And I have so many guy friends that just submit to having sex with someone they don't even want to have sex with because of this exact thinking and got them questioning, wait, am I not like, you know, whatever. And they just submit. And that's, that's not sex. That's not biblical sex. I, I was like, I, I discovered early on in, in my dating life that I was just super bad at one night stands. Like I was just not good at the like, oh, I just met you. We, we, we like, you know, had drinks, let's go be physical. And I was just so ashamed of that. I felt like, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to just want to have sex all the time with anyone I can find. And it just took me a long time to be like, actually, you know what, for me, a sexual experience is better if that's just not like, if we take our time and we get to, you know, we develop a relationship. I mean, there's just so many factors involved for me that made something a good sexual experience, but that was hard to learn. I mean, for, there's a lot of years there of just thinking like, I'm just, there's like, I'm just not good at this or I should be embarrassed about who I am because this is not how I approach my sex life. And I, you know, it took a long time to, to, to figure out what you just said and, and to understand it. Yeah. Well, um, I think, you know, the last, I mean, I would like to know your final thoughts too, but I'm just realizing, and we talked about this on your podcast as well, that I see masculinity and femininity on a scale exactly the way I see sexual orientation, which is that, you know, they say biologically that, you know, very few, maybe no people end up on the polarizing end of one or the other. Like there's maybe no one that is incredibly straight or incredibly gay. Like the majority of people land somewhere else on the scale. And um, masculine and feminine is exactly the same. That we have been taught this lie 
And, and again, attributing all these traits that have nothing to do with masculine and feminine, like femininity is having a, a warm meal on the table for your husband and you're wearing a dress and you're singing a lullaby to your baby and masculinity is you're, you're, you know, taking out the garbage. It's just like, that is not true masculine and femininity. That is that those are just actions. They're irrelevant. That is not a definition of masculine and feminine. What that masculine and feminine is, is more similar to what we're given in the Bible, um, where in the beginning, in the original Greek and ancient Hebrew, God's name was not man. It was not a he, it was Elohim, which is both. And the creation story talks about masculine and feminine creating the world together in perfect unison. And in that way, each of us is made in God's image, and we are full of both masculine energy and feminine. And I feel both very powerfully in my life, and you're saying you feel the same way too. It's like you and I are just on this scale of masculine and feminine, leaning more in the, quote, wrong direction than other people might. And the people that, that just happen to land more on one end of the spectrum or the other are like kind of empowered to have this arrogance to shame us to make us feel bad for not feeling the way that they do when in reality they're not wrong for being as masculine or feminine as they are and we're not wrong for being somewhere else on the scale and we need to stop vilifying each other and we need to stop convincing ourselves that we are wrong for acting in a way that is innately true inherently real about who we are because when you force yourself to be a football player when you're just desperate to read some books in a tent, like you will be in pain and you will not be living out your full potential. Yeah. Yeah. I, I teach a class called every year called God, sex, love. And um, one of the, the main thesis of the course is that over the course of the history of Christianity, uh, it is undeniable that Christianity has been responsible for um, enforcing a very repressive approach to sex and gender and sexuality. Uh, we just can't deny that. On the other end, what then, and you know, my, my students are largely secular people. So they're like nodding their head. They're like, oh yeah, religion, so damaging. <laughs> right. The second, part, the second part of the thesis is, however, religion can also be, Christianity included, a force and a vehicle for liberation, for freedom. And that includes liberation and freedom when it comes to sex and sexuality and gender. And so we have a very complex um, phenomenon to study and we need to recognize um, sort of both impulses in the history of religion and the history of Christianity in particular. And so um, I, that's kind of how I see it. You know, we, you know, if, if folks go over to my YouTube um, channel, they'll find a video I made that's called the history of Jesus's vagina. And um, <laughs> That's not meant to be, I'm not like making a joke. I mean, there are, there are Christians in the history of Christianity who have pictured Jesus as feminine and as female. They've interpreted the side wound that was in his side when the Roman soldier poked him on the cross as his female genitalia. And they have sort of created spiritualities and songs and hymns and mysticisms based on this conception of Jesus, right? Well, that's been the source of inspiration for many people over the course of the centuries to be um, queer Christians, to be LGBTQ affirming, and to find there a different model than is often taught in the kinds of uh, evangelical spaces we grew up in. So um, yeah, that kind of stuff I think is absolutely, completely important to, uh, to, to the conversation we're having. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why there's this greater force that's out for our destruction, but 
to me, it's, it's so wild. I'm just realizing that an LGBTQ person, for example, in a way is more in tune with who they're made to be than the average straight person because straight people were never challenged in their sexuality. They never had to fight to be who they are really. I mean, us in evangelicalism kind of did because we had purity culture, but in society as a whole, like usually they don't have to challenge those ideas within themselves. And just the, the reckoning that a lot of people have made in the LGBTQ community and just realize like, no, I, I act more feminine and that's okay. Even if I'm male identifying, et cetera, like that is actually more in close alignment. And for whatever reason, there is a destructive force in this world that wants to rob people of that innate knowing and that, that spiritual understanding and that deep recognition of who they are and who they were made to be. So I'd encourage everyone to just not allow these toxic messages to destroy you any longer, to compartmentalize, to fragment you, to convince you that you are wrong for who God made you to be, because the Bible itself says that you're made in God's image. And if that's true, then you must be an image of God as your book reading, <laughs> sweater well, wearing, sweethearted, that's right. self. <laughs> that's right. No, my, my cardigan game is unparalleled. Um, that's what I tell my students. Um, you, you, know, the, you know, what you said there, Brenda, I, I know we need to close down here. Is, I'll just be quick. Is What you said about being challenged is that's the essence of male privilege, right? If you're a man, um, people often do not question your authority. They don't question your sexuality in terms of your, your sexual desire as legitimate. And so, you know, if we want to do the work of reforming masculinity, we have to acknowledge that part of doing that is male privilege, that you're, as, as, especially if you're just a white straight dude in the world, you are never challenged in terms of the legitimacy of your being. And so, you can float through life without ever sort of reflecting on the privilege you have, um, not only as a white person, not only as a straight person, but, but as, as a male, as a man. And so to me, that's the work of, uh, of reforming masculinity is like you, the first step is acknowledge the privilege of not being challenged in the world, not having to do the work from age five or 10 or 15 of calibrating who you are because who you are is being challenged. Like most men don't ever consider that. And that's part of the, the the problem. Wow. That's really beautifully said. That makes so much sense to me. Um, yeah, I guess in conclusion, I would say really hope that this hasn't been alienating for people, you know, and then if you do feel really challenged by this conversation, if it brings up rage and fury and fear that, you know, we're trying to take over the world with femininity, then I would say to check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> Because obviously that means there's something inside of you that is resonating with the truth of what we're saying. And, um, and I hope that we've invited you appropriately into this conversation to say, we're not saying you're a bad person. You've just been given ideas that are harmful. And if they've been hurting you, like you have every right, and this is your permission and your opportunity to look inside of yourself and figure out if you've been harming the female identifying people in your life, if you've been harming yourself in your masculinity. And um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on Bradley. Um, can you please tell everyone where they find you and your podcast? Yeah. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Bradley Onishi. Um, if any of the stuff I talked about with 
love and masculinity and soulmates uh, appeals to you, I have a YouTube channel just kind of launched. I have just like three or four videos up, but it's called Myths of Love. And you can check that out, including the video on the history of Jesus' vagina. I have another video on um, Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre, who had a polyamorous relationship for like 50 years. Um, and uh, you can find my podcast. Uh, it's called Straight White American Jesus. And that's anywhere you can find your podcast, Apple, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever. So um, check it out. We'd love to, we'd love to uh, have your support and, and have you join us in our conversation. Awesome. So everyone, thank you so much for being here. If you enjoyed this conversation, please like, share, subscribe, subscribe to Bradley's podcast and YouTube. And that's it. We love you all. Love God you all. bless. God bless.